It's like a silver bullet, but you still got to get a gun and you still have to learn how to shoot. Prior, welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. I am very excited to get started with this interview, and we're going to start in a slightly different way. So, Scott Selhorst is here. Scott is an SVP executive consultant at Leading Agile, and he's fired up. So, we're going to do his bio at the end. Scott, what are you worked up about today? So, I got I got a little worked up about empathy mapping. I was I was having a conversation uh, with with a few folks uh, who didn't really see the value in doing empathy mapping. Like they sort of came at it, and this is this is a flaw that, that comes from, it's, it's an easy side effect of being cavalier about using canvases, right? So canvases are, are, are a super effective, uh, very easy to approach, like a low barrier to entry way to organize some thinking and, and do some of the critical work we need to do. The risk is that because the canvas is so easy to approach, it, it's also easy to lose sight of the significance of the work that you're doing. It's like the canvas was created to make it easier to do something that's important and kind of difficult. Well, so and oh, can I? Ahead. So I had this issue not just with empathy maps, but also with personas in general. I've had classes where people just flat out refuse to take part in it because they think it's too stupid and fluffy. So why is all of this? I mean, empathy maps, yes, but the other stuff around it as well. Why is all that stuff so critical? Okay, yeah, that's okay. So that's, that's a great framing question. So. Um, I'll start with, with, with one of those old saws. There's, there's the, the joke that says uh, half of your marketing budget is wasted. The problem is you don't know which half. <laughs> okay. Right? So, uh, and, and, and it's totally true and it's easy to appreciate. So then the question is, well, how do I figure out which half I'm wasting? Like I got to go do some research, right? So that's, that's the headspace I'm in. Okay. And uh, when I think about the plan, and I'm, and I'm going to use the, the term plan so that I'm not talking about an epic roadmap or a product roadmap or a backlog or a release plan or whatever, just right. your sort of your product plan. Whatever okay. it is you're going to go do to execute on your vision has a bunch of stuff in it that's wrong, and you just don't know which stuff is wrong. And there's no if, way around that. There's no way around that. Every plan has Even stuff in it that's wrong. Even if you are the second coming of Steve Jobs, you're still going to have some stuff wrong. You're going to build a Lisa once in a while. You're going to, you're going to launch a smartphone that doesn't have apps. Yeah. Okay. Right. I mean, what you do when you're wrong is what separates you from the rest of the pack, right? It's sort of like not getting, it's, it's not the people who don't get knocked down. It's the people who get back up, right? I mean, they're like, right. there's, there's, there's a million analogs we can use for this framing, but basically every plan has stuff in it that's wrong and if you have an approach for discovering what's wrong and fixing it, you're going to end up with a better plan and you're going to do it faster than your competitors. Okay. So, so how are the empathy maps going to help us figure that out? Yeah. So that's the, in, in the, in the product world, one of the things we're helping organizations do is shift from the sort of inside out mindset or headspace where if I build all the stuff I planned to build and I do it on time, on budget, on schedule, I declare success because I finished all the work I planned to do. Right. Well, we, we know that that's not success anymore. Well, success it is a PMP. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've listened to enough of, enough of your other shows to know that <laughs> we agree that that's not success anymore. That's true. Yes. Uh, right. So success is when I solve the problem. 
Okay. Right? That's what being, that's, that is the fundamental framing of being a product driven organization, but it's just good product management in general. Now combine that with being uh, outside in, with being customer oriented, with being human centric, uh, with being user focused, right? All of these different terms are talking about making sure we actually solve the problems that our users have. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So now coming back to my notion of the plan in the plan, we're building stuff and we're building stuff because we believe that if we build these things, it will solve some problems that some people have. And we believe that if we solve their problems, they'll change what they're doing in a way that benefits the business. Okay. Right. We're, we're driving towards the simultaneous solution of real problems that our users and customers have that drive economic benefits for our organization. Okay. Right. So our plan is, is manifesting that connection. I build this thing. It solves a problem. My user changes their behavior. That results in a financial benefit. Like so I'm changing a process. Example. I believe that this person attending a baseball game will be hungry. I'm going to sell them a hot dog and a bun, which will satisfy their hunger and make them thirsty enough to come back and buy a beer, which I will sure. also sell them. Yep. You can go with that. Let me, let me give you uh, another example as well. Okay. So uh, I've got a call center and it's really expensive to support my customers and I'm getting ready to triple the size of my business. I just, right. I'm about to, do a launch with some massive partner who's going to really open the doors to a much bigger audience and much bigger market. I don't want to triple the size of my call center and build out new systems and increase the licensing so I can have a thousand people answering the phone or whatever. So I'm going to go build some self-service capabilities into the website and reduce the number of people that have to call the call center <laughs> so that I can avoid growing the call center. Right. Okay. So I'm assuming that there's a problem of people call the call center because they need help with things. That's a pretty yeah. reasonable assumption. Yeah. And, and I'm assuming that if I, and, and I'm assuming that they want to use self-service. So that's the right way to build it. Yeah. And I'm, and then, right. So I'm assuming if I build this self-service, I'll get fewer calls. People will take care of themselves. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's a set of assumptions. Sorry. And then there's another set of assumptions that says, if I reduce the calls because I get this change in self-service behavior, I'll actually save money. And I, and I like using this example because this is a real one from my history. And one of the things you discover is not every call takes seven minutes. Like when you, when you start looking at the KPIs of the business and you, you analyze your call center, you're like, okay, I've got seven minutes per call and I've got so many calls per thousand customers. Right. You got to find right. that twenty percent that's going to reduce things the most. I, yeah, I do the math and I and I figure out the headcount stuff. So the way to save money, or, or the way to avoid the need to increase the rate at which I hire more people when I'm about to grow, is to find the calls that take the longest. Exactly your point, right? And it's a power curve. So some of the calls take, you know, twenty percent of the calls take eighty percent of the time. Yeah. Well. Okay, awesome. That's what I need to go build. But then if you think about, especially when we talk about agile programs and um, the plan potentially being wrong, we tend to roll out the thing we can roll out first and fastest or the thing that's easiest to roll out. And so what we end up doing is building self-service for the things that solve the easiest problems. Okay. Solving the easiest problems. Those are the calls that take the least time. So yes, people are self-serving. And those calls go away, but all of the really long calls are still happening 
Right. And I still have to hire all the people I still had to hire. Well, and can I add a real life anecdote that just happened to me yesterday? Yeah. I had to change a train ticket. And for whatever reason, the website wouldn't let me do it. I had to call Amtrak and they had an uh, you know, automated system. Um, it was so poorly set up. It took 20 minutes to change one train. And I'm so irritated that the next time I have to change a train, I'm going to walk the seven blocks of the train station and do it in person. Because it may have saved them some money, but it made me as a customer so annoyed. I'm going to go make sure I take up more of their time in, with a human. Yeah, now yeah, I, absolutely. Right. And, and this is one of those things that's super insidious. Because if you imagine, especially in small team agile, but if you can imagine being in the room where you're locally optimizing. Yeah. And you're building out your backlog of how you build out this self-service capability. And you orient around scope of, well, we succeed when all the self-service happens, right? You're going to pick a nice, narrow, vertical slice to build first. Yeah. And you're going to build the easiest thing first, and you're going to pressure test the system, all that stuff. And you're, you're going to go live with a solution that doesn't actually achieve the goal. And we won't know until we actually go live with it, right? Yeah, you don't you don't know until it's too late, which is probably another conversation. Yeah, but like uh, for the for the lean oriented listeners in our audience, uh, the best way to reduce waste in the system is to not put the wrong things into the system. But we are. I mean, we're, either way, we're working with a set of assumptions about what we think the problem is and what we think might fix it. Right. I mean, there's got to yep. be some way to test this out. Absolutely. Half the marketing budget. Remember, that's our anchor. We we know there's bad stuff in the plan. So I'm like, okay. How do, how do I get my arms wrapped around the notion of validating or figuring out how to validate which assumptions that if I solve, if I build the thing, it'll solve the problem, yes or no. If I solve the problem, I'll get the behavior change I desire, yes or no. Right. right? That's one Those aspect of Those are two separate things. things, right? Yep. Yeah. And like, well, I kind of need to know who I'm solving the problem for. And I need to understand well, do they even have this problem? Do they have some other problems? It's yeah. just the right way to solve the problem for them, right? So getting that understanding around that user requires me to do something. And an empathy map is a fantastically easy to use tool to get started down the path of doing something. And the risk is it's so easy to there's no barrier to entry. So people could be really cavalier, jump in, fill out an empathy map. And right, even if you just do this one hour session, you're like, yeah. there's value in this. And this is why it's sort of dangerous. And I think this is why sometimes people stop way short of what they should do with an empathy map. But aren't, aren't we just, I mean, like if you and I sat down and created an empathy map for somebody, we're still just working off our own biases and assumptions, right? Uh, Unless we have al the data. Almost always. Yeah. Okay. But, Yes, an empathy map is a fantastic organization synthesis and communication tool for taking the results of actual research and using them effectively. It's okay. also a really handy tool for organizing and doing the analysis to identify what is all the stuff you need to go figure out. So right? if, we, if we have the data, we can actually map the data into it. If we don't have the data, it's going to help us gain greater visibility of where we're making assumptions or where we seem to be biased. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? So okay. if we come back to this anchor of the plan has stuff that's wrong and we've decided to figure out how to go fix it. Yeah. Well, and like, okay, I know I need to go do some research. And before I can do research, I need to build a research plan. 
well, before I can build the plan, I need to know what it is I don't know, right? Yeah. We get down that world of known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Well, right yeah. now, all of my unknowns are unknown. But I could use an empathy map to pull together this point of view that says, what are my known unknowns, right? Um, okay. There's value just during that hour or two hours or four hours you spend building the empathy map. There's value in just taking a break from all of the chaos around you and the rest of doing our jobs to be thoughtful about who our users are. Yeah, but we're not building stuff while we're being thoughtful. We have yeah. to build stuff. I could, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put a pin in my little lean thing. Um, yeah, no. Sorry. I mean, that's all like I could hear some manager in the back of my head going, stop with all this fluffy nonsense, build something. Yeah, well, you know, it would, it would be ironic if we talked about empathy maps without demonstrating some empathy for the people who have to create it, <laughs> right? So absolutely, when you're in that role, when you're a product manager, product owner, product yeah. person, um, and the organization is pressuring you for quantity, Right. Because that's what they see. They're pressuring output, you for outcomes. Yeah. They see user stories and acceptance criteria and features and acceptance criteria and epics and success criteria and all of this stuff. Right. They see all the artifacts. They're like, give me the artifact because I know what to do when you give it to me. And so I need more artifacts. Right. And then this system has pressures of we need certain backlog depth and time horizons to be predictable. Right. All of the pressures from all of the people who aren't product people are on give me more of this stuff. And all of those people who are doing the pressure absolutely rely on us to give them the right stuff to do. What they're not pressuring us to do is the, the staff work or the legwork that's required, the thinking work that's required to have the stuff we give them be the right stuff. This is that. This is us doing our work. So can I ask you a question? A question about yeah. this? I'm looking at, and I'm going to share the graphics with folks. This is the picture that you sent me right before we started the, the interview. Um, you have assumption register up here, and that's something that I've been wanting to ask about. I, I talk about this in all my classes, but I, I don't know how widespread the use of that is. But if we started out with an assumption register, which I'm assuming you're keeping separate from the backlog. Yes. But, couldn't we use that as the artifact to show them, look, here's all the stuff that all the exposure we have, all the risk, all the things where we're just deciding this is the way the universe is. We have no idea. So this is the artifact that's going to drive our focus into these, you know, more mindful areas of empathy maps and things like that. I, I'd say that's, that's really damn close if I'm allowed to cuss. Yes, um, yeah, as long as you actually do. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. So, the, so the register can't drive it. Okay. The register is a catalog. Right? Okay. That, this is here are a bunch of questions. I these are inputs to my research plan. Yeah. But I still need to prioritize among them. So I need some additional information that's more than just what a register really helps me do. Okay. I I need to I need to bring together two points of view. One is how how justified am i in my confidence about a particular assumption right? okay am i just making stuff up ha, do i have some domain expertise and anecdotal data do i have related data or do i have correlated data do i have uh 
deep research? Do I have experimental test results? Right? They're, the inputs into my formation of any particular assumption yeah. are a reasonable proxy for the likelihood that that assumption is wrong. Okay. Right? But that's one dimension. It's, I, I want to go do the research if I'm really likely to be wrong. I don't want to waste the time and money to do research on something that I'm unlikely to be wrong about. Okay. Right. If, if, if the, the only value of the research is changing a decision, right? It's that 50% of the marketing budget that's wrong. Yeah. Right. If this is part of the thing that's right, you know, doing some, doing some research to confirm that it's right. Well, that's, that's like a false positive. That's also kind of waste. If I want to use the, the, bust out some lean again so, so when we're when we're okay when we're, we're capturing things in this assumption register should we be writing them in such a way that this is something we have to prove to be false um, try, like almost like a murder board like you know we want to kill this thing we want to make sure this idea is wrong before we continue to assume it's right you know that's that's probably a really fun way to do it um I, I, I would I would say let's put a pin in the the sort of the detailed level of of how we execute it language wise. Okay. Uh, different different folks I work with have. I was just thinking some, the way that you were saying it, like it. I, I, yeah. No, that's I, that's exactly right. But some when we're introducing this practice to folks who haven't done it before. Yeah. That's a difficult mind bender to overlay on top of this shift in perspective. Okay. Once they get in the role, then yes. Like yeah. if, if you flip it into a murder board, right, you start to bust out your disprovable hypotheses, scientific method chops. Yeah. All of that stuff makes it better, but you got to get people in the headspace first. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, okay. So we've, we've called out one dimension and there's actually two we need to look at. One dimension which says, don't waste time researching things that are unlikely to be wrong. Right. Right. Because all you're doing is confirming that they're right. Yeah. Now, and that's a qualitative scale, right? Everybody has a different level of risk appetite. So how many things are above the line versus below the line for sure. need to research is an interesting question. That's one dimension. The other dimension is what is the impact of being wrong, right? So this is like a sensitivity analysis. Yeah. Sometimes being wrong doesn't matter. Ah, that's what, okay. I was wondering about that post-it. All right. I'm glad you're yep. explaining this. Okay. Excellent. Right. So you, you have, you, you have your plan and you can do a sensitivity analysis and say, which assumptions, if wrong, break the plan or undermine the plan. Okay. Right. If we're wrong about this bet, right. Cause every one of these assumptions is like placing a bet, right. We're, we're walking up to the roulette table and we're putting some of our money down on red and black. We're putting some of our money down on individual numbers. Yeah. Right, some of these bets are more long shot than others, okay. and so you you do a sensitivity analysis and say, I only want to spend the time and money to research things where if I'm wrong, it's going to hurt. Okay, and so now combine those two things. I only want to research it if it's going to hurt when I'm wrong, and I only want to research it if I'm likely to be wrong. And we're and we're acknowledging that both of these things are going to be to some extent tainted by our own biases about them. Yeah, right, yeah, we even this process. People, we don't have all this documentation. Someday that's gonna be a massive deal and it's gonna be massive because, I don't know, we think it is. But yeah, no, that's, that's a great call out. Like even with this process, uh, yeah. it's like a silver bullet. 
And uh, a few years ago, I was on a particular, having a particularly salty day and somebody asked about silver bullets. And I was like, well, yeah, sure, it's a silver bullet, but you still got to get a gun and you still have to learn how to shoot. <laughs> Good, okay. Right, so yeah, even this process, all this process is doing is uh, explicitly managing the risk of your plan and yeah. reducing the, the risk profile of your plan. Okay. Right. So I use the assumption register to identify all of those risks. And then I prioritize them based on how important it is to go do the research. If it's not going to break the plan, I don't need to do the research. If, if it's not unlikely, I don't need to do the research. Right. So there's going to be stuff that bubbles to the top of the list. And every organization has a sort of a different characteristic of their risk profile and so any given portfolio team makes a call of saying this is this is the level of risk that we need to mitigate and this is the level of risk that we are comfortable absorbing and you move forward with your plan so can i raise a situation and see how this ties in with what you just said okay and this is based on something that happened to me recently in the past year teaching a class for a military organization. And at one point I asked them, um, this is a group that refused to do personas. I asked them about, you know, how they capture information about the customer. And they said, well, we're not, we, we don't, we're not allowed to talk to the customer. So then I'm having a heart attack. And I'm like, well, how do you know if this stuff is the right stuff to build? They're like, well, they, they tell us what we have to build. So this is a group that has no access to the customer it's just like 17 months after they finish the work gets deployed. There's no feedback loop at all. Um, they have to build whatever they have to build. So I'm wondering if for them, the impact of whether or not they're right or wrong, they don't really have one. Yeah. Okay. They have to do it anyway. I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there's, if there's sensibility behind their argument for not doing it because it's, it doesn't affect any investigation about assumptions or any of that, it doesn't affect what they have to build because their organization is structured in such a way that, no, you're just going to go build this thing. Somebody else has placed a bet and is not checking it out. Yeah, okay. So uh, let me try and use a, I'm going to try and make up a military analogy that okay. might hold water because there's, there's like a, even in the world of I have no agency, I have no autonomy, right. I have no permission to change what the scope is. Right. So let's say my admiral has told me I have to take Midway Island. Okay. And I have to defend against a possible carrier group that I don't know about. So when I go to take Midway Island, I'm only allowed to use half of my aircraft on my bombing run. Okay. The other half I have to hold in reserve. Okay. If I do this research, I can discover that there is a carrier group and where they are and I can deploy the other half of my resources yeah. or I can discover that they're not close enough and I can make a change to the plan. Yes. So in this scenario, they don't have the ability to change this plan, but they can identify the risks and they can telegraph their best situational awareness and perception so that some other planner who does have permission to, to build the next plan can get that process started now instead of waiting until after it's failed in the market. Okay, good. Yes. This is great. 
So yes, worst so case scenario, you, you, you accelerate you, future decisions and make them better. Okay. So I guess the thing that I was hoping, which is where it ended up going, is that even if you're handed this order that says you have to do this thing, just do this thing, don't ask questions, you just do this thing, um, it's still worth doing this stuff because it's going to give you a better understanding of, of other things you might be able to have an impact on. Okay. It might find its way back to helping you deliver smarter stuff. Oh, yeah. So, okay. So let me spin around and I'm going to join your, your military group who doesn't want to do it. Okay. Um, if, if I contain the value of doing empathy mapping as I now have this better, qualitatively better understanding of my users, and so yeah. I'll probably make better decisions moving forward, yeah, that is pretty soft. That's not super useful, right? If, if all of the value of empathy mapping is whatever I get while I'm in the process of doing that map, yeah. that's, I don't know, 1% of the value. Okay. Right. That's not nearly as valuable as changing the plan based on what you learn. Okay. And you don't learn it while you're doing the empathy mapping. All the empathy mapping does is help you identify the things that you don't know yet. Ah, okay. Good. And, so th this and is then that builds your register. assumption register. register. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Once you get an assumption register, then you can build a research plan. Well, these are the five things that are most important to research that are the cost benefit is justified. It's worth delaying work. It's worth spending money to do the research. Okay. All right. right. And then, then there's, there, there's a couple practical concerns and this is where I just, I, I think I was sort of overwhelming folks in the room when I was uh, scratching out these sticky notes and slamming yes. them up on the wall. Like, okay, your research plan. Okay. I'm going to go do some interviews. I'm going to go do some ride alongs, some contextual inquiry, whatever it is I'm going to go do. I got to know who to do it with. Right. So my empathy map represents a homogenous group of people, right? A persona, right? Yeah. People who share the same problems or in the same environment, same context, the people whose behavior changes I'm trying to create because they have problems I'm trying to solve. And I know the stuff I want to go build to solve those problems. Well, I better make sure I'm talking to people who are representative of that population. If my plan is dependent on that population, getting their problems solved. Yeah. Right. So that means I need to build a screener. Well, I can't build a screener that helps me design the right questions to categorize the people I might talk to into either members of this group or members of another group, unless I do the empathy map. Can right? you That's, explain what you mean by screener real quick? Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll do a super, super simple example. Uh, let's say if I'm trying to solve problems with... Uh, pre-birth, late-stage pregnancy. Okay. One of the questions I can ask is, are you a man or a woman? Okay. I'm not going to interview it's a man. filter. Yeah, it's filtering. Okay, got it. Yeah, right. But it, and, it's, and it's obviously much more sophisticated and elegant than that because I have multiple users and how do I differentiate one population from another? Right. right. So the level of aggregation of my understanding, and to your point, it is also flawed, that gets captured in the empathy map I need that level of fidelity of perspective in order to develop a screener that is likely to be effective so that the people I talk to are likely to be representative of the people I need to talk to. Okay, cool. Uh, my research plan also helps me build the questions, right? What do I need to observe? What questions do I need to ask, right? And that's an art in and of itself yeah. too. Yeah. And I've got to, of course, mechanical, I, I have to go actually do the recruiting and screening of candidates and set up the interviewing and then do the interviewing. 
right? But I need the empathy map to build the screener before I do the interviews or the, to build the screener before I do the ride-alongs. So I want to just slow the pitch down for a second and, and okay. re- refer back to the, the podcast we did last year on empathy maps, which I'm going to link to in the show notes. It is an awesome walkthrough of how these things work. We, when you came to the class that I taught um, and kind of schooled me up on personas, by the end of it, my understanding was we've got like the proto persona, which is the fakey one where we just make stuff up. Then we get some actual data. Then we probably move on to an empathy map. And that was sort of where I was ending with it. But now we're taking all that information and we're extending it going through these additional steps. And this is a way that we're going to make sure that the bets we're placing are smarter than they would be if we just walked in and threw chips onto the table. Yeah, that's a really good way of thinking about it. Like, and by extending it, I would say putting it to good use. Okay, yeah. yeah. Right? Instead of just declaring that it is valuable to have one, we are using it to do the thing we need to do, which is improve the plan. All right. This is why I love working at Leading Agile, because I'm constantly learning new stuff. And I was before ending just an empathy map, like, this is valuable, you need this to understand the customer, and then we move on. Um, but if, okay, if I was a PO on my own, could I do all this work? Uh, yes. Uh, product ownership and user experience if i drew a venn diagram there's a whole bunch of overlapping space okay and so there are there are product folks who do this kind of uh contextual inquiry and there's you know there's just straight up there's an entire craft of user experience research right that does solely this right those are your experts your your deep practitioners okay but yeah uh, you you can do it you can partner with somebody to do it uh, you can contract out to somebody to do it. Okay. Um, I've, I've worked in all three models, actually. Okay. So we build the screener. We figure out the questions, which is going to be tricky all by itself. We figure out who we're going to uh, interview. We do the interviews. Then we've got to take all the data and tell the story. Yeah. And, you know, and, and in fairness to the people who happened, who had to listen to my diatribe when I was slapping these stickies up on the wall, <laughs> that... Uh, that analysis and synthesis sticky is the same size two and a half by two and a half yellow square yeah. as all of the other ones, but that's a giant sticky, right? Any, every single interview you have to analyze and tease out what are the signals and what's the noise. And then across the body of all the interviews you do, you have to synthesize and develop the insights that you get through pattern recognition, right? That's a heavy lift. Right. You don't want to just have a conversation with somebody and go, oh, crap, my whole plan's wrong and tear it up and change it because, boy, you have no idea. You might have talked to a complete nut job who drives you in the wrong direction. Right? There's patterns. You have to find them. That sticky note really should be one of those uh, easel pages that sticks on the wall. Okay. So with this, I can... I'm imagining a lot of bad actors and a lot of bad behavior and thinking of a lot of people I've worked with in the past who would take all the data, look at all the results from the interviews and find the one anecdote that matches their decision of what everything had to be. And there you go. There's the proof. Those other 99 answers, they don't matter. This one is the one. Uh, Confirmation bias. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm in the middle of that Kahneman book. So all this stuff is like, (laughs) I can't stop thinking about it. Yep. How do we fix that? Or how do we, oh. I guess we can't fix it. How do we 
either protect ourselves against it or, or, or find a way to, you know. Yeah. So, okay. So, so my silver bullet and you still need a gun <laughs> and you have to learn how to shoot. Yeah. My silver bullet is that you formulate your hypothesis ahead of time. And uh, actually we're doing a workshop next week with one of our clients on hypothesis formulation. And a hypothesis is a little bit more rigorous, scientifically rigorous than that assumption would imply in the assumption okay. register, right? But the assumption and the hypothesis are the same thing. It's just what direction are you looking at it from? Well, a hypothesis we test, an assumption we just decide, right? Well, yeah, sort of. Like you're saying, I'm assuming this is true. Yeah. And, and in the hypothesis, we're saying, if this is true, this is what we expect. Okay. Right? So, I mean, it's the same this. Um, it's just whether or not we're willing to do something about it. So, yeah. So, what you said is true. Um, okay. In the hypothesis, I would say, here is what I assume. And I will know it is true if I see X. And I, I will know it's not true if I don't see Y. Okay. Right. So, but what's, what's important, and this is how we, this is how we help ourselves avoid confirmation bias is we set those criteria before we do the interview. Right. Okay. It's also super useful for figuring out what questions to ask or what it is you need to see in your ride along. Right. If you give yourself explicit instructions of this is what I need to find or not need to find that helps you look in the right place. Yeah. So can I walk back through this and ask you a few more tactical questions about doing it? Yes, sir. You may. Okay. So when we get to, I'm thinking of a scrum team. Okay. Um, we get to the, the first two posts here, the stakeholder analysis and the empathy map. Who's involved with that beyond the product owner role? Uh, is it, is it yeah. going to be the dev team or is it just the PO on their own? Because I was thinking that the dev team would be great for this. Right. So it's, 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 it's everybody who has awareness, right? So I've got business sponsors. I've got subject matter experts. I've got product folks. Uh, I've got dev and QA folks if they have awareness. Okay. Um, but this is a what do we know? Like stakeholder analysis is another one of those deceptively easy to do things, Right probably everybody in the team can tell you who are all the people who create accounts, log into the tool and use the tool, right? I could just go into the database and say who created an account and what's their job. Yeah. You have to, you need a little bit more understanding. Uh, and I love Steve Blank's quote, quote, you don't learn anything inside the building uh, of who are those people interacting with when they're interacting with our product. Okay. Who are those people interacting with and what is it they're doing, right? That stakeholder analysis diagram is helping us get a map of the ecosystem. And then you use that to say, who is the user it's most important to understand, right? Going back to the plan, which of these users is it most important that I solve their problems because of whatever my, my business case and hypothesis of value, some users are more populous than others. Yeah. There's, whatever, right? There's, there is somebody is, who is most All important. users matter, but some matter more based on what yeah. you're trying to achieve. Or, or some matter first, if you don't want to say some okay. matter more, but it's okay. both. All right. So when I move beyond that, I mean, at some point, I'm assuming we need a little more expertise than just people that care and developers, right? Well, uh, I don't know that I need more expertise, uh, 
the way the way I talk about it with teams, and and most often I'm introducing this to teams who've never done this before. Okay, is we're going to start by capturing the knowledge we have in the room, because right we're we're working with companies who are successful companies and we're working with people who are smart people. They've had different channels of information, right? They're not just like literally randomly sitting in a room making stuff up, right? Yeah. They've got signals from sales calls and salespeople and whomever they've spent time with the customers. They've talked to customer service and gotten feedback about what are the bugs that people complain about. Some, some irate customer has escalated something to some VP somewhere yeah. came down with the wrath of God on your boss and then you got pulled into the room. <laughs> so you have some information, yeah. right? We're, we're taking what's in the room and pulling it together in order to get a transparent and honest assessment of what information we're missing. Okay. This is awesome. Um, all right. I have two other, I mean, we've gone through this whole thing. I just, I want to make sure that I'm not, skipping out on any parts of it, right? Because we're going to take what happens in the analysis synthesis and use that to drive changes in what we're planning to do. Yep. Okay. Um, when you were talking through this, one of the things that popped into my head specifically was design thinking. And when I'm teaching the classes, I'm always talking to the, to the students about how the fact, if you're going to do this job, you definitely have to be aware of that, familiar with it, as well as lean startup. Um, are there other things that you think people involved in a product ownership type role should be studying or engaged with that are beyond the scope of basic agile practices? Um, yeah, that, that list is almost infinite. Uh, <laughs> well, so, so currently what so, are like so, the top so, three that people are missing? Uh, top three, I would say are management accounting, cognitive psychology, and, uh, the evolution of technology. Wow. Okay. <laughs> right. Like you, you, you have to have, you have to have some orientation towards building credible business cases for okay. why something is worth doing. You have to have some foundational orienting skills around understanding your users and customers and the problems they need to solve and how they think about that. Okay. And you need to, uh, inform whatever plans you put together based on the feasibility of the organization to pursue them. And you said excluding agile practices, right? So feasibility is both how do we operate as an organization yeah. and what are the tools that we have available to us? So I excluded the organizational feasibility and capacity stuff because okay. that's in the agile bucket. Right, right. And then say, oh, I also need to know, you know, are we moving to the cloud? Are we doing this stuff in browser with JavaScript? Are we trying to solve it on a chipset on a smartphone? Like what, whatever that is, you need some sort of awareness of technology that helps you um, appreciate the feasibility of any particular approach. Okay. And in the context of empathy mapping, one of the things that we do is we call out what do they see? And part of what they see is the evolution of technology in adjacent spaces, right? They see the competitors getting better, they see, you know, look at the control panels in our cars now. Those are massively informed by the control panels of smartphones, right? There, are, there is adjacent space technology evolution that's happening that informs your user's view of the world. And you can't develop empathy for them without some perspective appreciation of that. 
So I'm going to add something to that, back to that military story. One of the questions I asked these guys was, well, how do you know how to make things, you know, these interfaces, how do you know how to design them? And the guys said, well, we just make it look like Call of Duty. Yeah. That's what all these guys play Call of Duty. So that's what they're expecting. And that's interesting because I'm assuming Call of Duty was based on what the tools actually looked like originally. I, I believe it, right? The heads-up display and the mini-map, like we've, we've evolved in decades of gaming into some compelling, uh, not virtual reality, but uh, augmented reality overlays yeah. of yeah. patterns of usability. We, there are things that we know that help people with sense-making and navigation. And yeah. those are problems that, from a cog psych point of view, people need help with. And so you can intersect those two sets of things. So for them to build out a Call of Duty style affordances into tools that are used for real makes a ton of sense. Yeah. It makes a ton of sense to me. This stuff is awesome. I really appreciate you taking time to do this. And I know I've got a bunch of other topics I want to talk to you about as well, but maybe we can find some time to get those on the schedule too. Absolutely. Um, so if so, let's. I want to back up really quick. Can you tell these folks who you are and what you do? <laughs> since we didn't do that at the beginning, <laughs> sure. So, so I'm Scott Selhorst. Uh, I'm part of the team at Leading Agile, and uh, I'm I'm helping large scale companies uh, transform. Uh, a lot of my emphasis right now is around helping them transform into being product driven organizations, helping them uh, do the agile transformation work necessary to be effective in the context of a uh, digital transformation, right? As, as organizations retool, not just how they do their work, but how they are who they are, that uh, there's a lot of product that comes into that. And it's not just strategy formulation, it's also strategy deployment and decomposition and doing things at the level of detail like this empathy map that makes the things real. Yeah. And so working with teams to help them uh, both up their game from a crafts point of view, but also uh, contextually and situationally apply it as part of larger teams and help those broader parts of the organization appreciate the need for some of this stuff, or at least the value of it. Cool. This was, and what if they want to get in touch with you? What if they would follow up questions for any of this stuff? What's the uh, reach you? Scott.Sellhorst at leadingagile.com is super easy. Okay. Uh, if you're more Twitter-ish, uh, at Sellhorst. Um, two H's with an L in the middle. Okay. Uh, so I'm out there yeah. and, um, uh, those, yeah, that's, those are both perfect starting points. Okay. I'm going to include links to those plus a link to the empathy map podcast we did, which was awesome. And it's, it's, it's a very detailed walkthrough of what they are, how they work step-by-step step, all through the process. Um, and Scott, thank you very much for taking time out for this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Always enjoy talking with you, Dave. 